0: Hi, I'm Wale Emmanuel. You're welcome to this new episode of In These Moments. This episode features a conversation I had with Fuad Lawal. He's the editor-in-chief of Zikoko, an online media platform that produces Nigerian and African content, and they do that really well. I came across him a while back. And always wanted to speak to him because a few years ago he took a trip around all the states in Nigeria which I've always wanted to do I've talked about it with friends and um, we've always talked about possibly doing it sometime maybe when things are a little bit more stable and I wanted to speak to him about that experience about seeing the country as a whole meeting people from all parts of the country and experiencing things that most Nigerians don't get to experience. Unless you go to these places and experience some of the things that happened there, you're not able to put a lot of what you hear into context and have a clearer view of how things work. Last year, him and some other people at Zikoko took a trip around West Africa on Jollof Road, exploring countries in West Africa, eating the food, getting to know what connects Nigeria to other West African countries, and most importantly, tasting the Jollof rice in different countries and seeing how it stacks up to Nigerian Jollof. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you like it. If you're a history buff, if you're interested in stories from the past and stories from places that you haven't been accustomed to, you're definitely going to enjoy this episode. I'm going to stop talking now so we can get into Fouad's story.
1: My pregnancy was hard because of a very big baby. My mom used to say I was born in patience. I was born on the 3rd of December. My dad's birthday is the 4th. So I came early in the morning on the third, like I'm not doing this nonsense combo with you people. We lived in Sulere. Then we moved to Ikorodu. We lived in his estate, Jubilee Estate. And Ikorodu was just this quiet town that had lights all the time. It was one of those old Legacy's utopian housing estate projects. I think I learned early how to win people's trust from winning over my brother's trust. Because when you are like seven and your brother is seventeen, you are operating in completely different worlds. You're trying to navigate toys. He's trying to navigate women, and he's trying to navigate women. He's going to want to bring them home, and he wants to bring them home. He needs to be sure his younger brother will not snitch. I was not a snitch. Our neighbors that went to the US, they kept their VCD with us. This five loader. We didn't have. We still had this old sharp cassette player. So when our folks live like this, we bring it out when Boris this, watch film, watch film, watch film, watch film. Then when you just hear the horn in the evening, I just run to go and open the gates. After I come back, none of it ever happened. It is. So yeah, we had a good working relationship. But like, because we were constantly in different times, when I was in secondary school, I was in uni. When I was in uni, I was working. We didn't really become like, in a sense, equals until we were in the working class at the same time. So we had the same struggles. We're worrying about money. We're worrying about responsibility. But yeah, the interesting thing is that for a long time also, we never really lived alone as a family, just for us. Lastpotec was near my house, so every cousin that was going to Laspetech and their friend lived in our two bed. My mom had this thing where she didn't like shelter her children or something. So like the senior in the house is not the first child. The senior in the house is the oldest person, whoever that person is. Whether it's my cousin, whether it's my cousin's friend, etc, etc. I think what it did for me was I'm not as obsessed with ownership as most people. But this year was the first time in my life that I owned my own space. And like, I don't know what to do with it. I feel like I paid that rent just so I could walk around the house naked because that's the only value like it gives me it's the same with places It's the same with people like i've never really felt like my parents were just mine i'm not the most possessive person about anything most of my friends are friends with my other friends and it's mostly because oh yes there was me many of them are married etc etc
0: for talks about developing a hunger for the world and how would drone shot of somewhere in Bauchi influence his decision to go around the country. My brother schooled in Kaduna for his secondary school, he schooled in Delta State for his
1: university. I schooled in Nabeokuta for secondary, schooled in Southeast, South, South for uni. Of course, I would say that kind of contributed to just this wonder um, loss, this hunger for the road. And I what the I respect a lot. I think in Bauchi, they had this thing about the state government, and they shared drone shots of Bauchi, and I'm like, huh? I used to work at Pulse. I left Pulse. In 2016, Q4, Osage dragged me back to Pulse. So coming back to Pulse, I knew that getting one full week in December to not work was impossible. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it, we'll take the country. Drew my itinerary. And then December 31st, I went to the office with some of my friends. So i use using internet, actually. I wanted to download movies that will last for the next few days. And then Osage just came to the office. And I'm like, look, Osage. I don't know how, but next day I want to travel around Nigeria. So like, we can't do it now, we can feed to him. And the moment I was you not know, we we feed to him, he was like, yeah, but we need a plan. January 15th, I just ambushed him. I was showed him my Excel sheets. like, this is the itinerary, these are all the things, these are. it's like fantastic. But like, you know, this thing we need to pay for, we need to find a way to fund it. I was like, wait, I just showed him all the potential. And that all the potential opportunities. He just said fantastic, we are doing this shit. It's easy until you now have to start figuring out the fine details, like, bureaucracy, approvals in the office. a very large team, over 100 people. And eventually I travelled in July. I travelled and I realised that all I just wanted to do while I was road was talk to people. All kinds of people, like, I met this guy in Joss, who is a keke rider. Like, he has seasons where he goes to go and he's an actual gold digger. He goes to go and dig for gold, precious stones, cereal loans, amphora. He goes for a few months, comes back, and what he sells, maybe he sells like for 600 k That lasts him for a long time again. He's doing keke to support. And it was just a keke ride. And there are a ton of people like that that like he doesn't meet. You meet a soldier that is like he's from Anambra State, he's fighting Boko Haram, he's a bomb disarmer. And he's talking about how he really loves his babe. And he knows his babe loves him, but our love does not reach Damaturu. And it's understandable. He said he's understandable because nobody won't die, right? I think it is people I genuinely care about and like what they have to say. Everybody's ordinary. They open their mouths, but the full realization for that came when I came back from the trip. When you travel for a long time, it is difficult to readjusting to like everyday life. And I was now like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to approach Lagos like a stranger, and I started talking to everybody. There's an IDP camp. I don't like I don't know if he's still there, but it used to be there. He just runs this random kid that's most likely be on an accord. and people on Twitter will be abusing him and calling him a He's not even Hausa. He's from Chibok. His mother was killed because an RPG struck, becomes RPG. His father was slaughtered on Damboa road two months after I passed there. Like, what are the odds that you meet this person that you have crossed paths at some point? There's the guy on my, my brother's street, actually I was living with my brother then. He just sells water. Like, he puts 10 kegs and you say, oh, you're telling him that, oh, bring water, and you are irritated that he doesn't understand you properly. But he's like, he's actually trying. When we got talking, I realized he speaks French. He has lived in Nigeria, and he's not even from Nigeria. he's actually from Mali, but he left Mali because of um, Tuareg issues in Northern Mali ETC. He has seen more cultures than you. We sat down together one day when I was planning West Africa. So we were talking about Mali, and he was telling me that when the conflict started, people were fighting for secession, these people did not join. And I'm like, why? And he's like, oh, they didn't join because they know that once they follow these people, those ones, they are like more Arab-ish that they are going to become second-class citizens. And are like, ah, hello, my water guy, teach me about colorism. It's just very easy to just see these people and just one single brushstroke, No complexities, no, nothing. I think feeling trapped in Lagos made me examine Lagos like a stranger, it made me not make assumptions
0: about people. When traveling around a country like Nigeria, a big thing to factor into your preparation is safety. It talks about some dangerous encounters on the road and also goes into the difference between traveling with just men and traveling with a woman. I have a reputation for being the,
1: being stupid regarding safety. For example, when we're in the Northeast, we had a park and someone DM me on Instagram saying, you should totally go to Bu. Bew. Bewe is my town, where I'm from. And Bu is interesting because Bewe has also never been conquered by Boko Haram. I was traveling with my colleague Chris and he's like, why should we go to that place? Don't you think it's not a good idea? And I'm like, nah, let's go. And we're at the park and we're like, you know what? We don't bet that if she replies my message with a phone number before 11.20, we'll go to Bill. and we're waiting and she just replied and I'm like, we're headed to Biu. And heading to Biu means that somehow, somehow, somehow we ended up in military intelligence, there's a cantonment there and got interrogated for like five, six hours and then got transferred. The next day to Damaturu, the tactical headquarters. B was in Bono, Got transferred in, con- like, military convoy. It's like the tactical headquarters in Damaturu. Got interrogated again. Got transferred to the DSS. Got interrogated again. Real statements. We spent f- basically Friday to Monday evening. I remember when they we were signing my release forms at the DSS. I'm going to write about it. Like, when it became clear to me that, like, okay, anything could have gone wrong was. My form had occupation journalists, and as we're sorting it, the form under my form, occupation Boko Haram fighter, and I'm like, okay. And then hearing stories from the soldiers, like a soldier telling me that when the military efforts intensified, before they send Boko fighters that they captured to Abuja, when now go to the point, Abuja is like, you know what? Don't send them anymore. Whatever you like, do with them. They extract as much as you can and dispose. Dispose is mostly like, kill them, right? There's this ditch, they call called Abuja. So they told the fighters that. They're going to Abuja, take them there. These are the soldiers that said it. Once you carry them, go. There, you just use one leg, push and like, it's following with two bullets, ta-ta, ta-ta. I was talking to a soldier and I asked him, but is he, is he ethical, is he honest? That doesn't think he's unethical. He said he knows, but like, what's the alternative? Like you're fighting a war. And the thing about war is that if you're in it long enough, it always gets to you. So you're seeing all kinds of soldiers, all types of stories. Like in Lagos, you enter a portal and come out and you abuse some of Soldiers will enter portals in in some parts of the North States and come out and be like, ah, oh, yeah. Praise the Lord because Bukam used to rig potholes with landmines. They spoil the road and rig it with landmines, and then you just enter. Bow, Sometimes they push cows on the road. You can't overrun cows. Ambush, papa, papa. Pa. The bomb the sami I met said when the a bomb, but it was actually an ambush. There's a bullet scar under his arm, just around his armpit, because when he raised his hand, like the bullet just brushed under him. All kinds of stories like that. So yeah, security was not. It was also easy when I was traveling within Nigeria. To not worry about security too much because, for the most part, I was with guys. There's no privilege, of course. Traveling as a guy in Nigeria has its own struggles. Every checkpoint was a shakedown, like proper shakedown. And I was mostly wearing black shirts because when I travel, you want to wear a shy public transport, once want to wear black shirts so that it doesn't get dirty on time. Mm-hmm. To see. Proper shakedowns at checkpoints. In Benin, SARS vehicle, just like eight guys just came and surrounded us, like. Person I was talking with Chris, he's always agitated. So I always try to do the talking. I'm like, ah, yeah, officer. And we're carrying a long bag, a tripod bag. I'm <laughs> wearing black shirts, just looking suspect. I went to Inamikano's house, met Inamikano. He's a very interesting guy because at that time in Lagos, we did not understand what IPOB was. But like, seeing it firsthand. And I realized that Inamikano didn't see Inamikano as just another dude. He was like Moses. This Moses was taken to the promised land i mechanic come out of his house and a woman that was in the compound burst into tears just seeing him like you know the way people used to burst into tears for michael jackson She just bursting into tears just seeing him he says she traveled all the way with crutches one of his guards i asked this guy i said what's your name i said archangel so he clicked because why he said Archangel because the entrance to where inam this kind of stays he's one of the two people standing at the entrance just think of that book of bible stories image of two angels standing at the entrance of Garden garden Eden. exactly I'm like, okay, so what is your real name? He said, Akejel. What is your father's name? Him. He said, Prince. Two months after, Nigeria mirrored the place. Python now scattered everywhere. But it's also interesting that Inam was not hiding. He was, his house was five minutes from the government house. So there's this assumption that maybe um, because Ina has gone, the sentiments have gone. It's a lie. There was a ton of premiership merch as now. Chelsea, but there was also a ton of Biafra merch everywhere, Okada. We pranked someone. He didn't even know it was a prank. Inumaya. We said where well, is his sticker, a pop sticker. And he started to stutter. I'm mean, going to ask him if he's Biafra, he was not explaining that. He's really, really Biafra. He's really, I didn't say my name, but because Chris said, Chris is Igbo. So Chris said his name. And the guy was explaining was, he was not begging, us if we have extra stickers, we should give him. So the sentiment then was, it was not a thing of pride. It was a thing of shame for many people to not openly support in our movements. That was interesting to see. And I think another interesting thing that now made me realize that if I was going to travel again, we had to travel with a woman was someone joined us for two weeks from Bauchi to Abuja. And it was just so amazing because there are things that we never had to care about. For example, I remember the first thing she said was, well, I hate to be that girl, but I need my bathrooms a certain way. And I'm like, huh okay well we're traveling like on rad budgets we're sleeping in like we slept in a brutal like once it was just chips so or like two thousand. And and wanting clean bathrooms means that now you're talking about 10k but yeah like it was interesting to see the things she was worrying about that we didn't have to worry about before in um, sokoto for example we got to the park and they're like oh yeah let's just sit at the back I'm like eh i don't get angry quite easy. I wasn't particularly angry. When she became angry, I became angry too, because we are like, we're not going anywhere. The entire park basically shut down until they put her in front. I think we won that day because, of course, we are guys, to be honest. But it's also easy to see how, as a guy, you don't notice these things. It's why I measure the safety, especially of a place, by how safe women feel there. That's how to measure safety as far as I'm concerned. Because the most likely cause of Danger is most likely going to be a man. It's just like natural order, unfortunately. Even as guys will be, you go, walk work out for night. You go, hear yeah, two boys, walk out for your back. You do look shadow. Say, where this guy? won't pass, will you me? Before we go to Zanfara, when Kanu. She was trying to get a dress because she was worried about Zanfara. That, ah, Sharia, this is uh, a... they like, we go to a hotel. They're not going to give her a place. Apparently, like, the, the assumption is that if you're a woman, you're getting a hotel, you're most likely a sex worker. I mean, I had to play husband at the reception, just so we are clear. We got Zanfara eventually and she never wore the dress because the first nine people who met Zanfara in Gusau were Christians. One of them was Igbo, another person from Benue. It's not as if Zanfara is perfect, but it wasn't as bad as we had been made to believe. We travel in, within Nigeria. First of all, it's like, there's just so much that we don't know. Like when people were shouting, oh, oh, bomb the whole Sambisa. Is five times bigger than Lagos. Much you used there because, like, it's not even possible. Like, travel humbles you because you think you know she's, then you realize you don't, and then you're coming back home and you realize there's still so much you don't know, so you just shut up. When traveling became an important part of my life, I started having fewer opinions.
0: There was no point because this opinion you're going to go somewhere now, and next thing it's just changed. More from Ford after this short break. Mm-hmm. For parts of my discussion with Ford that didn't make this episode, head out to patreon.com slash welly. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash where you get extra stories from this episode and previous episodes, along with other benefits. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people come across the show and it helps us build more of a community than we have at the moment. Now back to the story. I asked about the biggest things that shocked him while traveling around the country. The busiest place in Madigua is Monday market. And when you read about Madiguru in Lagos, you think, oh
1: yeah, like people, these people are living in hygiene. And You go to this market at 12 p.m. and you are struggling to walk. People are left and right everywhere. And I asked my friend and he said that people a bomb goes off in Madigarina, you know, like 30 minutes, one hour, I'll start passing again. Like the problem is there is that people have normalized it. But the thing again is that people are just living their lives, man. Like, someone else I know, she uprooted her life to go and be an aid worker in the Northeast. She lives opposite Giwa Barracks. If, if you Google Giwa Barracks Boko Haram, there was a proper, you know, the kind of war. Like, you know, when the, the way the cartel comes, come and like remove people. Boko Haram came with like full force, come and like free their fighters. You know, when they're coming with so much force that even the Nigerian army has to go around and start telling people, Yo, Boko Haram is coming. Everybody leave. There was a period in the Northeast where it's not as like if they were in hiding or something. Iboko is coming though. Know. The battle, like gun battle went on for hours. Another thing again was I did not meet Nigerians anyway. People are their tribe first before they are Nigerians. And my theory is that Nigeria hasn't really given us any incentive to choose Nigeria first. People are Igbo first, people are South-South first, people are Chibok first, people are Goza first before they are Nigerians. Only place I met patriots, which is like one of the greatest shocks of all, was at Ajakuta Steel Company. Ajakota Steel Company, the same one that has never run. So imagine this project that is supposed to belong to the government that has suffered neglect, but the elevators are working, the water fountain is running, the grasses are well mowed. The day before, I was telling Chris that Chris, this is Ajakuta. If there's nobody there, we'll jump fence. So I was just convinced there's one place that we can jump and just take photos. And then we got there, and it's like this functioning place that the administrative building is well run. The only thing that is not working is the entire steel plant. Every Nigerian refinery can fit into Ajakuta's steel complex. Inside it, there are 12 mini factories, that kind of stuff. Let me give you a quick run of Ajakuta. Ajakuta was first of all, the location was chosen in like I think the 50s. It was chosen because it was like strategically perfect geographically. It was not to Igbo, not to Yoruba, not to Hausa. It was also close to like iron, like oil resources, the river, Jana Then Chagai's government collaborated with Communist Russia, like Soviet Republic, and built this massive thing. Where the beauty is such that the way they built it was that they didn't want it to be dependent, to depend on imports, so it is it can be self-sufficient to a large extent. Shagai built it to like it's something percent, but in the 80s, did a small bit. the did a small bit. Like it's up to 90% complete, but it's like the most vital 10% is incomplete. There's a blast furnace at the center of Ajakuta. It's the heart of every steel refinery. When a blast furnace gets turned on, it can't go off for 10 years. One of the engineers just said that if you had to measure it in trailer to contextualize it, the output of a day of Ajakuta will require like hundreds of trailers, like if you use trucks. And if you release them to the Nigerian roads for one week, our entire road network will collapse. So the alternative is real. There needs to be real. But that road doesn't exist yet. Um, yeah, Adria did a, he dredged the river there so that, like, ships it to it, it, it But it's basically, like, the final, the last mile. I think it's about a billion to finish it. Like, the entire thing, dollars. But, like, it just makes you wonder, like, why? Because if a Jakarta starts working today, whichever president makes a Jakarta work, the Nigerians will never forget that person because, first of all, the jobs, direct jobs, the indirect jobs. The real tragedy is that, so the Russians were heavily involved. They took a lot of Nigerians to Russia to train them, not just in engineering, but in Russian language, because many of the manuals are written in Russian. There's a senator in the house, this man from Kogi State, that ran for governor, and they were slut her. She's the Ajakuta crusader in like, government. Her father was, I think he worked in Ajakuta. And you start to wonder, like, why? And then. Apparently, like, Ajakuta is a conduit pipe. If you want to steal money, allocate it to Ajakuta. It will never reach there, but nobody will go and check. This Ajakuta has, like, the largest open air workshop in West Africa. It has blast furnace, has corrugating lines. Those corrugating lines that they turned on one time, and people were like, ah, Ajakuta is working. They just turned on one, one of the many factories. What the administrators now did was to make, to make the place self sufficient, they now, like, take on small jobs to pay the bills, etc. I've never seen Nigerians with someone so dedicated in my life. I was asking myself that, is it that these people are like this because of the communist influence? I don't know, like, but I, I met someone recently who told me that there was a generation of Nigerians where things actually worked. The person in question used to work at Citibank and he said that the way they trained them, like, the integrity was a big deal. That there was a guy who was trying to balance his books at the end of the day and he did not balance. No, nah, he was supposed to report it, but there was so much pride that my work has to be perfect, that he puts his own 15 Naira inside. When they found out, like they understood why he did it, but then he broke a law and they had to ask him to resign simply because he broke a law. But they respected him, that, that was how it was. People would speak to other people somehow, and, like they would ask for, they would demand your resignation. One woman was circulating church material in the office evangelizing. They asked her to resign. The interesting thing is that many of the people that were trained by the Russians to handle Ajakuta, many of them have been retiring between 2017 and they were retiring up to 2020. So like this is the final Ajakuta batch of originally trained Ajakuta people. And they never really maxed their potential. The Nigeria trip was very shocking. I'd never seen Nigeria that way before. I've never seen Nigeria the same since then. It's like there's just so much context. Every Chibok girl's denier I met was Igbo. And it's easy to say, oh, Ibo people don't have sense. But you realize that they have no incentive to trust Nigeria. And it's so easy to just wave them and say, oh, these Ibo people, their wala is too much. Are they the only ones I want to live in? And let them be going. now. Yeah. It's so easy to just push it away without actually even listening. Because there are people alive today who actually watched Nigerian soldiers massacre like their fathers for nothing. In Asaba, they just rounded them up. They just kept shooting too, like nobody was standing Somehow you assume that as a sort of person should just move on their lives like, as if nothing happened. The government was supposed to make a monument
0: to comrades. They didn't do it. They did it themselves. He talks about planning the trip around West Africa, the things Nigeria has in common with other West African countries, and goes into the history of Jolof. Immediately I got back from Nigeria trip. The first thing I
1: did was draw a West Africa itinerary. I just drew a straight line from Lagos to Dakar, from Dakar. Through the landlocked West African countries back to Nigeria. Said so I was going to. Say. In fact, then the old fantasy was, you know, dope, get a bus, spray paint seats in Danfo colours, and just do West Africa in the Danfo. I mean, eventually it happened this year. I was at post when I did post at six, but like this year it was Jollof Road, Zikoko, and it's interesting. But like the shock that the Nigeria trip gave me, I didn't get a lot of it on Jollof Road. Let me explain Jollof Road first. You know, the Silk Road story about how Silk, As Silk traveled, Chinese culture traveled, ETC, everything. The question for Jollofood was, yeah, we know rice is from Senegal. Who has the best Jollofoods in that conversation? But like, why Jolof was traveling? what else traveled? Agbada is not, it's not Yoba. I think it's even mostly um, Senegambia. Like, just traveling, has made me realize that West Africa is in fact a country. The biggest problem is the language, English, French. Our neighbors just feel distance because they speak French, but it's like you travel across South All the food is the same. All there are very few things we found that you would not find anywhere in Nigeria. So in the absence of the shock value of travel, this trip was like a pursuit of context. I traveled with Taki, Coyote, Captain, Tosin, Black, the boss. Taki found out that in Sierra Leone, they call their motorcycles Okada. And then I realized that it come to the Okada because in the 90s, a lot of Nigerian soldiers died trying to restore peace in Sierra Leone. Economic soldiers. And many of them probably stayed behind and wanted to start businesses. One of the easiest low bar for entry businesses to start anyway is Okada transport. And because Nigerians, they brought it, they introduced it. So people just started calling Okada. And then I started wondering like, wait, why are Okadas called Okada? And you realized Okadas are called Okada because first of all, why do people choose Okada? People choose Okada because. He helps us get from point A to point B faster, like aeroplane. And then realized that when Okadas were becoming mainstream, they were becoming mainstream at the time when there was an Okada Airlines in Nigeria. And it's called Okada Airlines because it belongs to Gbinellion. Gbinellion is from Okada, in Edo State. So it's like context you didn't know you needed. Now you know. And it's a lot of tiny things like that. It is going to Kaulak in Senegal and overhearing someone speaking Yoba. And you're like, why is this person speaking Yoba? And you realize, oh yes, Kaulak is the birthplace of Inyas. If you grew up in Nigeria, you know that there are two religious figures you see on Nigerian buses. You see Jesus and you see this Muslim guy with his beard. That Muslim guy with that beard, his name is Inyas. Inyas is from Kaulak in Senegal. He was huge in like Tijania. Tijania is like a tariqa, a sect inside like Sufis. He has the largest tariqa in the world currently. He's dead, of course. But his influence was so large that one of the largest Muslim communities, even in America today, they are Tijania. And it's just this guy that just Apparently had this inspiration from his small town in Kowlaak in Senegal. That rippled across the world. I saw BRT bus in Kowlaak. People chatted the bus. He traveled for five days to get to Kowlaak. It is pilgrimage for them. They go like once a year. Everywhere there's someone speaking Yoruba and complaining about um, Senegal's jollof. It's context you didn't know you needed, but now it makes sense. Suddenly the moment you see every Okada, you see that man with his beard. You think of all of this context and suddenly you're you're a little better off, you don't know where it's be useful. I think that's the thing about context, you don't know where it's be useful, you just keep arming yourself and arming yourself with it. West Africa for me was mostly just this giant pursuit of context, going to the birthplace of Jollof Rice in St. Louis and realising that Jollof Rice was even an accident. There's this woman, she's, she's actually Sere Pendam, Pendambaye. She was working in the 1800s, working in the colonial kitchen of the governor. St. Louis is like just cold, it's beautiful. And there was a scarcity of like sogum or, yeah, I think it was sogum. And they needed to make food. She was a chef and she was famous for cooking at parties and everything. And coincidentally, a shipment of rice just arrived from Asia. I found out from Morland. He's this culture daddy. He said it was actually Vietnam. And the shipment of rice just arrived and he's like, you know, let's experiment with rice as an alternative. And banged. And that's how Jollof rice came to him. And i are wondering, how did Jollof rice get to Nigeria? There are many theories. The theory is that Jollof rice probably reached here via either trade or soldiers. Trade because in the 1900, early 1900s, there was a lot of inter travel in west africa um dan tata dangote's grandfather i think he they lived in syria alone um shita bay the famous shita bay is actually from syria alone so there was a lot of inter travel in west africa it felt like a country because a lot of the languages are the same a lot of the food is the same how did this probably get here with soldiers because during the world war world war ii myanmar most of the soldiers that fought in Burma were from nigeria or senegambia understand it and of course like when you think about it jollof rice is super it's the perfect warm meal and then still on context jollof rice was an elite meal in nigeria it was not a party thing why wasn't a party thing because it was difficult to cook jollof rice for parties we used to pick rice we, we would grow picking beans we used to pick rice to remove stones imagine picking rice for a party so that means jollof rice was always cooked in small portions and what changed that my theory is that one day one is like Nigeria's problem is not money, but how to spend it. We became highly dependent on imports. In the 70s, Nigeria's peak prosperity period, rice importation spiked tremendously. And suddenly there was this rice available in large quantities everywhere that you did not have to pick. And jello rice became mainstream. I spoke to Ketra and she confirmed it. So the question is, what are we going to unravel? What are we going to
0: discover when we discover what life was like in those days? As someone who has seen the Jollof Wars for years, I had to ask Ford about the best Jollof he had traveling through West Africa. He answered the question in the most diplomatic way possible, but eventually he had the right answer.
1: So first of all, first place to start is, I think it needs to be established that in West Africa, it's like West Africa has two magnetic fields, Nigeria and Senegal. It's like every country in West Africa is a version of Nigeria or Senegal. All the francophone countries closer to senegal they call their jollof rice Chepuchen. chep is rice jen is fish so the original jollof rice is rice and fish so most of the francophone countries all their rice is a version of senegal's chep um in gambia gambia is like gambia is, is actually part of like the old senegambia but i mean the british took gambia so they the speaking is i think the only french countries that don't call their jollof rice Chep, I like to call are Togo and Benin. It's understandable because of Nigeria. I honestly think that chep and jello Fries are completely different things. I think it's like Kung Fu and Taekwondo. It's martial arts, but the techniques are fundamentally different. Chep is about more, great chep is about more, how much you can put. They will put potato. In Lagos, when they see people from the north, or people they assume are from the north, but actually from Nigeria, the when they see them eating rice and yam, they're like, ah, but like, there's rice inside this chip, there's rice, there's potato, there's tamarind, there's bisap leaf, bisap, that's zobo, all kinds of things. So it's an explosion of flavor. But Nigerian jollof, great Nigerian jollof is measured by how less. So it's like, if you want to measure banging jollof, and you're like, you don't see jollof that is just crisp, firewood smoke. That's why we drag fried rice, fried rice has everything, but jollof is just doing it with like either hand is the upper hand. I don't know how we're going to measure it, but for the sake of not getting attacked on the road, I say the best jollof rice is Nigerian jollof. Liberian jollof is the perfect blend of both. It feels like Nigerian jollof, but it's about more. Liberians cannot eat and put one meat. Liberians don't need to eat and be confused. I have a reputation I did chop, I they chow, but I was constantly full in Liberia because those people, they, they chop. Like, Liberian portions are large. You know when people make notes about Jevinik in Lagos? That's Liberia. The best chip that we found was at St. Louis, the, be- the best place of rice. Interestingly, interesting, there was this flavor, this firewood flavor in it. But the rice is different. So there's an acquired taste thing. But I genuinely enjoyed it. And Tokyo also enjoyed it. And Carol enjoyed it. And Tosi enjoyed it. And Captain enjoyed it. But I remember how I felt. When I entered Sokoto and asked Nigerian Jollof, my God, that was when I knew that we've gotten home. I love Nigerian Jollof. It's a battle that cannot be won, but it's just interesting to see how much ownership people have of it across the region. People take it personally, and it's great. It's great for the culture because it's important to keep fighting about Jollof rice. Because what happens is that everywhere people have done Jollof competitions across the region, people always bring more food and other food. There's this woman, she works at the UN. Dr. Kim in Sierra Leone, is Ghanaian actually, he said they did a um, Jollof competition. And when they did the first one, people from Kenya were like, yeah, we don't have Jollof, but we have food too. Can we bring it? And next thing, everywhere people gather to argue about Jollof, like culture happens. So I feel like the Jollof was as important as hip
0: hop, who is the best way to this. Super important for the culture. I asked about his future plans and he goes into detail about two incredible projects he's working on
1: when I came back from post I knew exactly where I wanted to go but right now I have no travel plans and I've, I've made my peace with it that's yeah yes yeah, maybe it's okay to not have travel plans I think there are a lot of things that need to happen that I'm interested in chasing that's keeping me grounded so my new favorite hammer to nail everything is context 2020 for me is just the tireless pursuit of context one project that we invested in at work we are still working on by my last count yesterday, there are about 42 accounts of the Nigerian Civil War. And the question is, what happens when you condense every single account, every single perspective, every single side into a single timeline and tell a story around it? So yeah, it's attempting to figure out how to teach another generation about the Nigerian Civil War. I personally believe that Nigeria cannot go forward if we don't address the war. Addressing the war will teach us how to address conflict. Every region in Nigeria has a mini conflict. Even if it's remove religious conflict. Ethnic conflict in North, Moda people are still fighting with Ife people. People are still fighting in Taraba and Benue. There's the southeast. East, there's small, small skirmishes, and then South-South. Across the North, there's Zamfara and Nasara, there's their own. In Nigeria is boiling and you don't, you're, you're, you find it hard to understand why it has not boiled over and like just exploded or imploded, whatever the English is. So that's one. The second one is from January 1st, 1960 to December 31st, 2010. There are 18,627 days. And another question I want to answer next year is, what happens when at least one day of news, of stories, from every one of these days is suddenly available? It's suddenly one URL away. What happens when you can, you can check for what news or what happened in March of 1973? January 1973, plane crash in Kanu. two hundred two on board, 180 died at the time of the plane crash, it? Worst commercial air disaster in human history. Yaku go on. So that same year he said um, Nigeria's probably has no money about how to spend it. December that same year, mobs across the north lynched 15 people because apparently they were um, making people impotent. In more modern language, you can say that they were snatching penises. And what's interesting is that I did not read that in a Nigerian newspaper. I read raised in the New York Times. It's not because Nigerians were not documenting the Nigerians were risking their lives to do journalism then. It's not just available. And I want to see if it's possible in my free time to figure out how to make that a thing where it is suddenly available for all of
0: us. A big thank you to Ford for sitting with me to have that discussion. I know I say this all the time, but it's one of my favorite conversations yet. I'm really big on history, knowing how things are, what they are. I'm sure most people who are big on the same thing enjoyed this episode a lot. So thank you so much for, for having the discussion with me. If you want more from him about his travels and the things he's witnessed, along with his experiences on the road, head out to patreon.com slash And for everyone on the Patreon, thank you so much for your support. Thanks for always being there. Thanks for, you know, supporting what I do and getting these stories out. If you want to find Fod, you can find him on all social media platforms at F-U-A-D-X-I-V. Also, check out Zucoco.com. They do an amazing job of telling important stories. I, I really, really enjoy their content. So definitely do that. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends. Don't forget to share this on your social media. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at In These Moments Pod. And you can find it on Twitter at Moments Pod also you can find me on twitter at king that's k-i-n-g-w-o-l-e message me about the episode message me about whatever episode you like if you have a story you want to share you can find me on there i'm going to respond to you and um, i'll let you know what next steps to take so um, thanks so much for listening to this episode i'm going to be back with you In two weeks, the next episode is really, really good. I know I say that a lot, but you have to understand that these stories are amazing to me and I really love sharing them with you. So take care of yourself. Take care of people around you. Be safe. Wash your hands as usual. Wear your mask. I'll see you next time. Bye.